the biggest lesson that I've learned is that it's all about the people you attract to the journey. And people are looking for a purpose at the moment. They're looking to be part of something bigger, something more meaningful. And the reaction that we constantly get from people about what we're trying to do at Nobody Studios and why it's different and, and the purpose behind it has really just attracted some of the most amazing people that I had never met or known before, but are honored to have us with them on their journey. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome, everybody, to what has often become one of my favorite shows of the year to do, which is often the last show of the year. And it's become a little bit of a tradition that I do this Ask Me Anything where I take questions from folks that have they've put out and shared oh, on a call out in social media and try and answer as many of them as I can. It's always fun to answer these questions. It's a great little reflection for me, I find as well, for me to look back on the year that's come past, but also look ahead for what I'm thinking about next year and some of the things we might even do different on the show. So again, thank you to everybody who put questions out there and brought really good things for me to start thinking about again. And I'll be working through as many of these as we possibly can over the next couple of minutes. All right. So the first question that really has come up comes from Aditya Singh. And their question was, perfectionism is one of the challenges I face quite often in a startup. How have you coped dealing with perfectionism in the startup you're working on at the moment? Well, this is a super fun question as well, because I think there's always this notion of perfection is the enemy of done. And I think one of the things I've definitely learned this year is that shipping wins more so than anything else. You know, delivering is actually a real great forcing function for all the components of what you need to make happen in a startup working. Whether it's bringing a product to market, if you're the delivery team shipping it, it actually starts getting the branding team working. It starts getting the operations teams working. It actually keeps the whole thing moving. And perfectionism, though, of trying to get it all right before we launch is real. You know, we're feeling it all the time on some of the brands that we're working on, like Ovations or some of the other companies being working on with Parentipity and so forth. But what we're finding is that the trick or the antidote to all of these is this notion of doing things smaller, sooner and safer to fail, which become faster to iterate. So what I'm constantly pushing myself and the teams on is what are the smallest market that we can really dig into, the first wedge that we want to make in the world about customer segment with a very specific pain point that we can start to solve because it gets us to market sooner. And if it doesn't work, it's sort of safe to fail. It's a small little step on the journey getting these companies live. And even because it's so small, it means we can iterate stuff faster. So that's sort of the antidote that I tend to use for perfectionism. It's always shipping wins. What's good enough that we can go live? And then using delivery as that first function to go along. My word, you're going to see plenty of that with Nobody Studios as we keep going on. Another question now from Amy Williams. And Amy's is saying, marketing has been a great challenge for me in a budding startup like mine. How do you get the most out of the content you create and the reach? So Amy, my tip here is this. Create once, use many times. And what I mean by that is whenever I try to create a piece of content, the next thing I'm thinking about is how am I going to slice it, dice it, cut it, triage it, put it on all various different channels and lots of different types and styles of formats so I can do something once, but it has a massive or exponential 
or a one-to-many type effect. So for example, when I do a talk, like the recent one I did on the explosion of entrepreneurship for product elevation, straight away at the end of that talk, I took a recording of it, a transcription of it, I turned it into three blogs, we broke it into lots of tweets, lots of little quote cards, loads of things that keep tying people either back to the talk or the blog that we've written that starts to go like one thing of content that I've created, suddenly got blogs, tweet, quote cards, threads, LinkedIn posts. So I try to really maximize the breadth of these. Similar thing when we do live streams, you know, we're constantly looking about creating tweet threads or LinkedIn posts from different sections of live streams. We chop them up into small little bite-sized vox pops, bits where people say something interesting. We do the same with the podcast. We create audiograms, little snippets that you can sort of drop in your social feeds every day. So one podcast you know, turns into a blog post, turns into lots of audiograms, turns into lots of tweets, quote cards. So this notion about chopping one things into many formats, I think is a superpower. And it's one of the things that we've been able to do to like really accelerate the breadth and number of channels that we play on. Because remember, different types of content plays well on different channels. And I think that's becoming even more and more distinct, especially like Twitter threads is a great example, or LinkedIn writing these micro posts as a single post. And then obviously video content just becomes more and more powerful over time. People really want to be able to see you. So yeah, they're the kind of things that I've been doing some of my marketing hacks in that space. Another question now from Bav Kurtwalu. Your distinctive podcast guests have shared many views and perspectives on being change agents and to make the world better. With that in mind, how would you summarize the insights and learnings for you? Well, I think one of the things that's most fascinating about all the guests that we've had, Banff, is that they are very different, very diverse, different backgrounds, different stories. Nobody has been the same in many ways. Maybe the principles have been the same, but their stories have always been very different. And I think the one or two, actually maybe three takeaways that I have from all of the podcasts, which I actually see as a great personal development tool for me personally, listening to other people's stories. It's been a great reflection and learning. But what I always take away is that success doesn't happen overnight, or certainly not in a straight line. And everyone we've had on the show, from Jim McKelvey, who was the co-founder of Square, their stories are always interesting. I think about Jamie Schmidt, who started Smith's Naturals in her garage because she wanted to understand because she create natural beauty products and literally built up a business and sold it to Unilever for hundreds of million dollars, starting from her appetite to try lots of different jobs in her career and then something that she wanted to do and found something that she really enjoyed. Jim McKelvey's story was great. He was a glassblower. And then he met Jack Dorsey. They were friends. They were annoyed with how financial transactions worked, especially for small retailers and started Square. You know, a lot of their stories are about the heartache and the challenges and the twists and turns that sort of happened along the way because they're real. You know, and I think these founder stories of, you know, they woke up one morning, went for a run, tripped over a stone and invented an next unicorn is BS, really. These people have hard, tough and lonely work at times, and they're not afraid to talk about it and share about it. And for me, that has actually been a real help for me to understand that a lot of the narrative that folks spin around founders-led companies or the startup, there's so many people involved in making it happen. And I think the more real companies talk about that, the real leaders talk about the struggles of doing it. And the big takeaway that I keep hearing again and again, and it's a big reminder for me too, as well as we're building nobody, 
is that having support around you is so important, whether that's your family, whether it's your peers, having actual coaches that are working with you on yourself. And then communities or groups that are on a similar path are vital because it's so easy to get caught up in all the noise of your work, your day to day, the challenges, your so many things are coming at you. And I think if you don't have outlets with people who are sort of outside the storm, peers that you can sort of sense check your thinking with, coaches who are helping you identify areas of growth or challenges you have or what you need to do, or communities out there who are on a similar path you can work with, it can feel pretty lonely and tough. And I think one of the things I'm personally trying to keep working hard on and get better at is having more coaches around me and more community around me as we're going on some of our crazy missions here at Nobody Studios over the next year. So another question here from David Kennedy. Barry, given that your move towards permanent hybrid work seems to be gaining serious momentum, how will this affect founders' efforts to scale their businesses, e.e. trying to nurture culture, align performance and behaviors? It's hard enough to do it with everybody in the room. So this is a great question, David, and one um, that I've been exploring quite profoundly, I think, over the last 18 months. So literally when the pandemic kicked off, Stephen Franchetti, who was the CIO at Slack, actually got in touch with me and mentioned that, you know, a lot of people were trying to transition to this hybrid or distributed work at the time. And many people didn't have the muscles, the tools or the capabilities or the know-how really to do it. No one had it really figured out. So along with Stephen and ultimately the rest of the executive team at Slack, we formed executive sort of mastermind where we invited execs from Fortune 1000s all over North America initially, and now we're doing them in Europe and beyond, to come together and actually share insights about what are some of the things that they're trying to do to help manage these businesses in this new distributed first, I would say, world. And you know, for those that are interested, I'd always recommend that you look at Slack's Future Forum. It's a fantabulous think tank led by some really great people within Slack and some great business partners where They're capturing a lot of great research and doing really deep scientific studies to understand deltas between how people were feeling at the beginning of pandemic now and looking forward. So it's a real great hub to dig out. Some of the real fascinating insights, actually, that have come out of that for me was one of the real biggest insights was that 93% of people want flexibility in their work, more about when they work rather than where they work. Now, this was a big sort of drop for me. You know, we've been talking so much about hybrid and are you in the office or out of the office? But it was so less about where you are. People care more about when you're working and the alignment of working hours. All different sort of cohorts or people with different situations. Some people like to work early and finish early. Some people like to work late. Some people have a lot of things going on in their lives. And what we're constantly seeing is that the alignment around working hours is much more important about whether you're in an office or not. So that was probably one of the biggest aha moments for me. So only 76% want flexibility on where, 93% want flexibility on when they work. That was a real sort of aha moment for me. The other thing is that I constantly discovered is that companies are not good at keeping people aligned about what they're doing. It's across the board, you know? And again, one of the sort of aha moments, again, how it showed up in Slack, is they used to do these big, massive all hands where they'd have an hour meeting, you know, once a week or every two weeks. And Stuart Butterfield would be spending three or four hours preparing for this meeting where it was a big slide deck and big wow presentation. And the simple fact is that 
people weren't getting a line from them. People didn't weren't taking an hour out of their time to sort of wait for this big update every week. What they want and what we've actually been trained through social media and other platforms is that people want small, bite-sized, frequent updates about progress, about what's going on. And actually, Stuart was inspired by the founders of Atlassian, Scott and Mike, who started making these much more shorter form, three or four minute videos where they would just sort of drop like little updates about what's been going on. And actually, this is a practice we've also incorporated in Nobody Studios, where we have a distributed team like all over the world. We've only been co-located once in July, where we're, you know, I think a team of about 10 of us got together in LA to meet each other for the first time. The, the rest of the time we've been building our whole company remotely. And this notion of just small little updates every week, what's going on? What are we working on? What's top of focus? Where people are able to digest them when they want. They don't have to be somewhere at a specific time that suits a small number of people. It's smaller, more synchronous communications where people can just drop them and go, this is what works for me and listen in and dial in and That's actually been one of the most powerful lessons I think we've learned. So this is what I'm discovering, I would say, David, is get your team thinking about smaller, more frequent communication updates, create a culture that's open and transparent about sharing problems, opportunities, be clear on what success is and the metrics that you're communicating and regularly updating them and how that's pivoting the steps that you take. And think more like social media in terms of your communication style for companies rather than this sort of archaic once a month all hands meetings where everyone gets together and do it. And I think that's sort of been one of the biggest aha moments for us and something that I've seen incorporated at companies like Slack and Atlassian and definitely what we're doing here at Nobody Studios. So another sort of interesting question is about in the unlearning process, what encouragement do you have to counter the fear of letting go of the past. And that's from Stephen M. Schuttler. So Stephen, I think one of the biggest fears people have about letting go of the past is they often tie their identity and their success to the things that have made them successful in the past. In many ways, the reason people have their current roles, their positions, their authority, or what their perceived respect and identity It's because what they have done in the past. When I started to talk to people about unlearning, initially, whenever I went into these Leaders in Fortune 500s or rapidly scaling businesses or startups and told them they needed to unlearn. Most people just wanted to kick me out the door. They're like, who's this guy? What does he know about anything? You know, I'm running this massively successful company. Like, what do you mean I need to unlearn? And a lot of it was telling them not that what they knew was wrong, but what they needed to start thinking about is how do you constantly adapt your behavior to changing circumstances. And that was a much more easier way to get people thinking. I would say to them, you know, just like products have features and you've got to constantly innovate the features of your product to stay relevant in its market, humans have behavior. So if you're not constantly innovating your behavior to adapt to new markets, then you're likely to be disrupted. And straight away that got people thinking going, oh yeah, actually I see that pattern in my product. Of course, if I think of myself as a product, and me and Gibson Biddle often talk about this, like you are the product. Thinking of your behaviors as your features and your ability to innovate your features was really important. So first of all, that sort of removed some of the, let's say some of the fear associated with why I need to be able to adapt. But then all of this comes down to, and I've seen this again and again in on learning, is it's this comfort with discomfort. Even when I run unlearning sessions with leaders all over the world, 
and I help them identify areas that they need to unlearn, describe our unlearning statements or stories of success that will show or demonstrate that they have, in fact, had a breakthrough in the behavior, thinking or approach that they're looking for. When I ask people to start writing down new things that they're going to try to start moving towards the outcomes they're aiming for, invariably people would always put down things that they feel comfortable with, that they know how to do just harder, better, faster. You know, we see the same nobody when we're trying to create products at the scale and frequency we're aiming for. People just think if they follow the same sort of typical design sprint process or customer discovery process and just do it quicker and faster, they're going to ship more. But the thing is, you need to change the way you think and the way you behave and try new methods. But most people aren't comfortable with that. There's fear that if I try something new, it doesn't work. How will I be perceived and looked at? So again, this is one of the reasons why doing smaller things more frequently becomes really, really powerful and getting people to experiment with different ways of thinking. You know, it's actually how we came up with the crowd infused approach to innovation. We started to realize that if we were going to do 100 companies in five years, there's no way we could hire enough people to get through that amount of companies. So instead of relying on the people in the studio to solve it, why don't you create a huge community and have a community of people who will volunteer ideas, do research for you, be alpha testers early, give you feedback on your products, be essentially your proxy customers. And when you think about having like 50,000 nobodies who are all part of our studio, be it contributors, talent, influencers, or investors, it's a really powerful way once you have a community to start building faster than anyone could do alone. Different way to build products than sort of using your typical sort of breakdown process. And then the last thing that really struck me this year and encouraged me actually to write a blog about facing your fears was conversations with a couple of great leaders. One of them was Alana Weinberg. Now, and she had written this fantastic book, Culture of Safety. And one of the things that she said was the number one jobs of leaders and managers is to learn how to regulate their nervous system and how to continue to expand it. The amount of fear and discomfort that they can stand as a leader before their body goes into survival mode. And this sort of resonated massively with me, especially as you're trying to build a startup. There's another great quote, actually, from Xi'an Ko, who was one of the early team members at NerdWallet and now a general partner at Hustle Fund. Now, one of the fun quotes she said to me is, working in a startup, there's like 100 fires burning. And you can only really solve two. And you actually really need to be comfortable about what are the two you can solve today, go home, work on them and let the others burn. And for me, that was a real like aha moment because it's like, that's what I'm feeling like every day. And your ability to sort of regulate how you feel as someone who's working in an environment where it is, can't be perfect, where you can't get everything done, where you have to prioritize where you think you can have the most effect at that moment in time. And then jumping from a situation like that when you're working remotely where you're deep in a painful, difficult, high stressful situation. And then suddenly that phone call ends and you jump to another situation where you're maybe meeting an investor, meeting a new employee, and you've got to switch from detail focus, stressful solving to, you know, open, welcoming. How do you, they are big transitions. And there's a lot of regulation actually of your feelings and your emotion and your ability to context, which also be ready to face and try things you haven't done before. And I think that's been something I've just become very aware of. And one of her tips that she had for me for all of this was to start tracking your fears. You know, and this is what I've been doing again. Another practice I've instituted this year is starting to journal a lot more, actually journaling my fears. And 
looking at them over time and seeing how they changed and find out which ones are real and reviewing them or even more fun has been prioritizing them, which Jay Schmidt actually gave me a tip on, but also then starting to test them. And that's actually been a real powerful way for me to make progress in some difficult situations is cataloging, capturing, prioritizing, managing and testing some of the fears that I have each day. And it helps me understand which ones are real, which ones are not real, which ones matter. And as I keep reflecting on them over time, it's actually helping me to continue to sort of just boost up um, my ability and keep extending to this point that Alana said to me of your fear and discomfort levels, how you can keep expanding them so you're, before you go into your fight or flight mode. So that was a big aha moment for me. So the next question actually comes from Mary Johnson. This is always one of my favorite questions of the year is what are you most excited about or thinking about at the moment? And to be honest, the simple answer is this. I am excited about the impending explosion of entrepreneurialism in the world. You know, the future of business is really, I see entrepreneurs popping up from the most unexpected places, more so than ever before. You know, the technology becoming cheaper, more accessible, more meaningful. I think the ability for people to come together to solve new problems with great ideas and then actually enjoy the reward is going to be very unique. I think we're really entering a time where all platforms that will be built, operated and owned by the users creating them is actually going to create some amazing different ways of working. You know, I think we're on on a unique precipice, actually, in terms of technology innovation. I think the internet was a, a friendly paradigm shift. We're in the midst of blockchain, machine learning, biotech, virtual reality, all of these things arriving simultaneously and cascading upon one another. Similarly, the next generation are passionate about creating, right? I think like 54% of Gen Zers plan to start a business. I think 86% of them feel like if they're not doing something creative in their daily work, it's unengaging for them. So I think the ability of this technology being cheaper, more people wanting to become experienced in entrepreneurialism is going to be a real innovation that is going to blow everybody away. There's a couple of things that I keep thinking about, the trends that really stand out to me. The first one is decentralization overall. I think this ability for remote teams, pocket-sized supercomputers, cloud computing, miniaturization and digitalization of everything you do means that, you know, we have a more powerful computer in our pocket than most desktops had 10 years ago, which means people can work from anywhere. They can process on the edge. They can build little small things and ship them on their own. They can create with these devices in real time. And I think the power of going from these centralized big entities and corporate structures to these decentralized computers, people, power at the edge, I think is really interesting. And then really the first early examples we're seeing of this is in distributed decision making is this notion of DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations, which are really about groups of people coming together to organize around an idea, fund it and start building it using blockchain technology to capture their principles and codify their policies in smart contracts on their DAOs. You know, and I think people like Mark Cuban have described DAOs as the ultimate combination of capitalism and progressivism. Right, where you've got uh, groups like Friends with Benefits, which is sort of an exclusive social culture club where people come together to create different culture items or products or services from working together because they're part of this community. That's really sort of fascinating to me. I think there's a huge deflation in terms of the cost of starting businesses. So the no-code, low-code movement, it's worth $14 billion at the moment. It's 
think the growth rate is something like 180% year over year. You know, it's going to be easier and cheaper for anyone to start building and launching products on their own. They don't actually need big technical development groups to actually get going. And disintermediations become to come even more and more real. And for me, this is the kind of fun part about creators and entrepreneurs no longer need middlemen platforms to access customers. Instead, they can build their products in the open, in small scale, and get them funded by communities, by cryptocurrencies or non-fungible tokens, which are sort of act as digital shares, right? So What's interesting about NFTs is not that they're a gallery picture or JPEG, it's that they're a badge, they're a share, they're a token in a community that you believe in. So you've got artists like Timberland, for example, who is the music producer behind Jay-Z and numerous other artists, who is creating EPs or funding their own products, i.e. their music, and letting their customers, their community fund those initiatives by owning an NFT or small stake of that EP as they create it. And what's really fascinating about that is the community then starts directly funding the creators. And they also have a shared stake in what's created by that community and can have wealth distributed. Another artist was actually got their EP funded and was distributing royalties back to the funders through crypto tokens, right? So To me, this is like super fascinating way about changing the way creators can actually connect with their customers, build community, monetize and grow. And for me, that's probably just most the most fascinating thing happening at the moment and definitely something I'll be talking about more. And you'll see shades of that in what we're doing at Nobody Studios. The reason we're doing crowdfunding and letting anybody own a small stake in the studio is because that's not been possible for people before. Typically, you had to be someone of high net worth, over a million dollars net worth before you can ever invest in private companies. But with crowdfunding, which is a mechanism most people are now familiar and somewhat comfortable with, anyone with a couple hundred bucks will be able to invest and own a stake in a small private company. With Nobody Studios, you just don't own a stake in the studio. You see upside from every company we create forever. So it's a diversified investment from the start. So super powerful way to do things. And the next extension of that is when you're doing crowdfunding is then to start funding directly yourselves through NFTs. So stay tuned. I think we've got some fun innovations coming up in 2022 that you might be able to be part of. Uh, So the last question then today is what kind of guests are you looking for for future episodes from Michelle Yan? Well, Michelle, first of all, you know, I think what we're going to have a lot more of next year is founders from Nobody Studios companies. So we'll kick off the year actually with Dr. Sally Spencer-Thompson, who's really a world leader in suicide and mental health, who's working with us on some of our health and wellness companies in the studio. And she's going to share a lot about the misnomers and misunderstandings about suicide and what happens, what it is, how to deal with it, as well as just dealing with difficult situations in the workplace and how companies and employees can actually find more collaborative to solutions to difficult spots. So I'm really excited to have her on the show, uh, Ray Leonard Jr., who's the founder and CEO of Ovations, our on-demand events platform will be on. But what I'm really looking for is to bring lots of early stage, interesting innovators, people who've done it, people who are starting it. So if there's anyone out there that you think I should be talking to, by all means, please introduce me and see who we can bring. The other small innovation we think we'll do with the podcast next year is actually trying to have more panels, multiple guests, different people appearing on the show, getting number of people uh, having dialogue 
rather than just me speaking about one or person individually. So I'm looking forward to sort of mixing it up and trying some experiments, uh, repurposing this sort of create content once and share it in many places, maybe some more live streams that are flipped into podcasts and shared in real time. So there's some fun experiments we've got lined up um, and I'm looking forward to it. And then the last question comes from someone who's listed themselves as my wonderful assistant, but that's an understatement from Sham, who literally runs the business for us. What's the biggest lessons you've had so far in 2021? For me, starting out this year, I knew that I wanted to do something different. It was time to change. You know, I'd been spending a lot of time where I had somewhat of a portfolio sort of approach to life. You know, I do advising with startups, consulting with big enterprises, writing, content creation. But I knew I wanted to get back uh, building more. And in many ways, that was sort of my inspiration for making somewhat of the boldest bet of my life, really, trying to start um, Nobody Studios with all the fantastic nobodies we've been working with over the last year. You know, and I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is that it's all about the people you attract to the journey. And people are looking for a purpose at the moment. They're looking to be part of something bigger, something more meaningful. And the reaction that we constantly get from people about what we're trying to do at Nobody Studios and why it's different and, and the purpose behind it has really just attracted some of the most amazing people that I had never met or known before, but are honored to have us with them on their journey. So I think it's a constant reminder. And I keep thinking maybe sometimes about this book, I think, that Dan Pink wrote on Drive around purpose, autonomy, mastery. There's nothing more true about what people are looking for right now. The great resignation is all about people losing purpose or not working on things that mean something to them or having a positive effect in the world that they can see and having ownership over their work about what they're going to try to do to get there and then feel mastery from continuously bettering themselves as they go along. And I think I'm really privileged to be in a great set, sort of situation like that right now, where there's a lot of purpose about why we're building Novi Studios. I'm trying to figure out in my own way with the team around us about what's the autonomy and the best way to do that um, and keep mastering new skills. You know, I think I'm outside my comfort zone on a regular basis. I'm dealing with things I've never done before, uh, like crowdfunding and building campaigns to do that, working with the SEC understanding how to do fundraising on a regular basis, both private angels and publicly. It's really been a joy and I've learned a lot. I've grown a lot. I've made some mistakes. But the one thing I know is that this is the best, if not cheapest MBA I'll ever do. And it's much more real. So that's my main fun thing. So there you go, folks. That's my quick wrap for the year. It's been super fun. It's so much to do, so much ahead. I really appreciate everyone's support of the podcast. Do send in the comments what stood out for you, what you'd like to see more of, what's been fun, what's been not so fun, what you'd like to see differently. We're always trying to learn, unlearn and get better. Have a great holiday season and we'll see you in 2022.